The year is 62 AD. The emperor is Nero and the empire is Rome. It's a time of political and economic instability. And the rise in Christianity has led to the rise in persecution. And following the fire in 64 AD, Nero is intent on deflecting and shifting the blame of everything that's happening in Rome to the fault of the Christians. And the rise of persecution began to grow as they became ultimately the scapegoat for everything that was happening within the empire. The persecution that Nero inflicted was marked by extreme brutality and the most horrific and horrendous methods of execution and torture were reserved for those who would not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. The executions of these Christians at this time were public and they were painful. Nero used to take Christians and he used to throw them in great amphitheaters to savage and starved animals. He would put them in skins and he would starve these animals. And then as the laughing and watching world taunted them, he would give them one last chance to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ before he threw them to the lions. They were crucified like their Lord. And Nero, if you know anything about him, was known for his extravagant garden parties that would be lit as he would pour pitch on the Christians, tie them to stakes and light them on fire so that the illumination of his parties was lit by the burning bodies of those who would not waver in their faith to Jesus Christ. Now, despite the severity of Nero's persecution, Christianity continued to grow and spread. Remember, Tertullian once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and such was true. Now, I mention this to say that it is in this context and against this backdrop that Peter writes his first epistle. He's writing to those who are facing hostility, persecution, alienation, and rejection because of their faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verse one, let me just read this for you. Peter is writing to those who are scattered. He says, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. And Peter is writing to these areas that are under Roman control, and he is writing to encourage them to do two things. Number one, he is writing to exhort them to stand firm. Don't waver, don't bend, don't comply, stand firm. And in order to encourage them to stand firm, he is going to remind them of a certain reality, that they have a living hope, because they worship a living savior. And so he tells them, listen, Nero can take your life, but you know what he cannot take? He cannot take away your imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is reserved in glory for you by the power of the resurrection. Do you think it's any coincidence that Peter initially reminds them of the hope they have in glory when they were being slaughtered like animals? No, he tells them to stand firm. But not only that, as my friend Harry always says, he encourages them to stand firm and to stand out. He knows that the temptation of Christians within an environment of persecution is to withdraw and privatize their faith and live under the banner. As for me and my house and only my house, we will serve the Lord. It's dangerous out there. 
So Peter says, listen, not only are you to stand firm, don't waver, don't bend, don't comply, you're to stand out. Remember in 1 Peter 2, he says that you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, and God has brought you out of the darkness and into the light so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of that darkness. That's what you are. You're the ecclesia. You've been brought out of the world and brought together so that you might shine. My daughter's learning this song and it's so simple and you know it. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it what? Shine. The temptation of people within an environment of hostility is to take that light and coagulate together so that they can just talk about how dark the world is. And Peter says, no, no, no. You stand firm and you don't only stand firm, you stand out. And he also encourages them that even the suffering they're facing is not unbeknownst to God. It is a part of the will of God. Contrary to public opinion and prosperity preachers today, God does not promise Christians a life with no difficulty. In fact, it is the exact opposite. He promises them persecution, famine, and the sword, and a glorious inheritance. In 1 Peter 4.19, Peter says, therefore those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, in order for us to stand firm and stand out, God knows we need shepherding. Last week, we began really what is a mini series on the church. We talked about how Christ is building his church. The church is the ecclesia. I just mentioned those who have been called out of the world and brought together in common confession that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we're doing here today. We are gathering together under the banner of a common confession that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and every other hope, every other religion, and every other way is ultimately damned. But we have the hope. And we're here to be equipped and then deployed to be disciples who make disciples. We're here and we make a common confession. We have a common unity because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to serve him, obey him, and glorify him. And the shepherds of those churches are those who are the chief leaders within the flock that Jesus Christ has died for. And we're gonna look at the role of what a shepherd, what an elder does today. Now, there are two offices in the church, that being elders, and then there's one other one. What is it? A deacon. Elders teach, train, and lead, and deacons are ministry leaders and administrators of mercy on behalf of the church to those who are in need. An elder is synonymous with two other terms throughout the New Testament, that being an overseer and that being a pastor. A pastor is an elder, and an elder is a pastor. They represent the same title and the same responsibility. Now, among the Jews, an elder was a leader in the Sanhedrin. And in the early church, an elder was someone who presided over the assemblies that were gathered. Now, if you want to know what we are doing here, right? We're here and we're gathering, and the elders were those who just resided over them, and they would teach, lead, train, protect the flock. This is what a Christian is. They're a member of Christ's flock. Remember when Psalm 100 verse three says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Before our life in Christ, we were described in this way, Isaiah 53, all of us like, anybody know? Sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. First Peter 2.24, and he himself brought our sins on his body upon the cross so that we may die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we are sheep. Every single Christian is a sheep. And God is our great shepherd. 
who appoints through his Holy Spirit under shepherds who care for, nurture, feed, guide, and protect his flock. Shepherds keep watch over the pasture that belongs to God. This is the root of where we get the word pastor. In Latin, a pasture is a pasture, and they are the ones who lead the sheep to graze and to feed and to water, and that's what a pastor is. They are a shepherd, and, and the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, is the one who exercises responsibility over them. In John 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, and he says he knows his sheep. He doesn't look out and say, hey, that one that's fluffy, that one that's got the three legs, this one. No, he says he calls his sheep by name. He knows them. You're not a number to God. You're known by name. So John 10, he is the good shepherd, and he gives his life for his sheep. In Matthew 9, when Jesus sees the crowds, it says that he has compassion on them. And that word for compassion means that his bowels were twisted. It's not that he just has pity on them. It's that he is moved. Why is he moved? Because he sees the crowds and he sees that they are distressed and dispirited. Skaluo. It means that they are harassed. Why? Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without shepherds die. There is no one to fend off the wolves. Sheep cannot scratch. They cannot bite. They cannot kick. They cannot jump. They cannot run. Do you know what a sheep does when a wolf comes? They lie down and they die. Sheep cannot feed themselves. They are totally discombobulated. They get lost easily. It says in Psalm 23 that the Lord is our shepherd and he leads us beside what type of water? Still water. You know why it's still water? Because if it's running too fast, the sheep will fall in and he'll be carried away to his death. And if it's stagnant water, the sheep's immune system is too weak to ward off even the faintest amount of bacteria. So the good shepherd is the one who leads his sheep besides still waters. He is mindful and cognizant of their vulnerability. And that is why shepherds are valuable because sheep are vulnerable. Let me read this for you in 1 Peter chapter five. Therefore, I exhort, verse one, the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Look back at verse one. It says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. That's in the plural. There is a reason why I am not the only elder. There's a reason why Ken and I are not the only elders. And it's because shepherds need shepherding. And in the days to come when hostility grows, that is the time when churches need the strongest, most godly, effective shepherds. Difficult times demand for enduring shepherds. So Peter exhorts the elders, it's plural. There's a plurality of leaders. It's not one guy at the top, I'm not the CEO and this is not my business. This is a group of men who lead the church. And it says shepherd the flock in, in 1 Peter chapter five. He says in verse two, the flock of God among you. Meaning that God has one big flock, some of it is amongst you, okay? Now, how do we as elders know who we are responsible for in the eyes of God. How do we know who we are to shepherd? Because we're to shepherd the flock in verse two, amongst us. So how do we know who's amongst us? Well, just very easily, that's why we do membership. 
because every single elder is going to give an account to God for the way that they shepherded and steward Christ's sheep. And so when we do membership, it's a tangible expression of these are the people that God has entrusted to us. This is my intro, okay? Now, today, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the calling, the qualifications, the attitude, the function, and the motivation of godly elders. Number one, look at the calling of an elder with me. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. We have at this point provided some context, but I want to examine how those elders that Peter is addressing got to their position in the first place. Well, in Acts 14, 22, we read the same reality of, the, of what believers are facing in the book of Acts. It says in Acts 14, 22, that through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Now, in light of this reality, the apostles are saying, listen, don't be surprised. Persecution is going to come. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Now, remember, difficult times demand for godly shepherds. So what does it say in the following verse? It says, when they had appointed, Acts 14, 23, elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The apostles set up elders in every church. And because tribulation is going to come, they appointed these shepherds to help encourage and exhort the people to do what? Stand firm. Don't bend. Don't comply. And stand out. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And listen, we'll talk about this more as we go but every single Christian is a disciple and every single disciple is a disciple maker. It's an oxymoron to say that a Christian is someone who merely attends a service. And the apostles selected elders in every city in the face of persecution to remind believers, you don't just stand firm, you stand out. Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter one, verse five, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Crete was a place that was saturated with idolatry and false teaching. And so these elders were appointed in order that they might defend the truth. It says in Titus 1.9 that they are to be able to defend and refute any sort of aberrant doctrine. Every elder has the responsibility of taking a 90% truth and refuting the 10% that is errant. Because you want to know how false teachers work? They say enough of the right thing so that you buy into the lie of the wrong thing. Now, before I came here, I used to travel and preach a lot other places. And I wouldn't really drop names in regards to, hey, this guy said this, I would watch out for this because I was just a visiting guest. But you've heard me at a couple times throughout my time here, mention names and say, hey, this guy said this, this is a lie because I'm responsible and the elders are responsible for guiding you through and to the truth and refuting any sort of deviant doctrine. And that's why the elders were appointed. Now, as we have already seen, elders are appointed, but who ultimately elects them? Well, we see the answer in Acts chapter 20. Paul is saying farewell to the church of Ephesus. He tells them, listen, you're never gonna see my face again. I'm gonna go die. And so he appoints elders, but it's not ultimately him. It says in Acts 20 verse 28, take heed to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. Now, who ultimately appoints elders? What's the answer? Among which the Holy Spirit. A church does not appoint elders. A church affirms 
those who have been appointed by the Holy Spirit. Now question, how do we know if the Holy Spirit has truly appointed an individual? Good question. Number two, the qualifications of an elder. Peter is exhorting the elders to shepherd. They have been appointed by the Holy Spirit, but what type of men does the Holy Spirit appoint? What are their qualifications? In that regard, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter three. And there are 16 qualifications here in a matter of seven verses. Every single one of these qualifications, by the way, except for one, has to do with the individual's character and conduct. 15 out of the 16 are character-oriented. So it says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Listen, leaders aren't the, last, aren't the people that went like, oh, I don't know, who am I to lead? No, it's, it says that if, if a guy aspires to be a leader and an elder in a church, it says it's a what? A good, noble thing. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Now, how do we know if their motivations are true and right? Well, we look at the rest of the list. It says in verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach. And number two, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he's going to be above reproach. My dad used to hold up a pan when he, I used to watch him talk with older guys and elders of the church, and it was a Teflon pan. And he used to say, what's this pan good for? It's a Teflon pan, which means nothing can what? Stick. An elder is a person, an individual, a man, where if someone was going to bring up an accusation against him or about him, you would be able to say, no, you don't know that guy. Like I know that guy. He's above reproach. Nothing can stick. He is a husband of one wife. Now, in the scripture, God has a high value for women in the service of ministry. They are leaders in ministries. They serve the body of Christ. They exercise their gifts. They are a critical component of the body of Christ. There is one office in the church that is reserved for men. And sometimes people try to do hermeneutical gymnastics to say that this was a cultural argument. But listen, this is as clear as day. There's one office in the church that is reserved for men, and that is the office of an elder. It says he must be the husband of one wife. Does that mean that women aren't mightily used by God? What's the answer? Not at all. This man is also not to be addicted to wine or pugnacious. That word for pugnacious means he's not a striker. He doesn't love conflict. If you're around a guy that loves to fight, he loves to bicker, he likes to brawl, that's not an elder. An elder is a reconciler, and so it will be disqualifying if he is pugnacious. He's self-controlled, and then there's one skill on this list. What is it? It's didactikos in the Greek. He is skilled in teaching. 
Why is he skilled in teaching? Because we're going to look at this in a moment. Because the primary function of an elder is to preach, teach, and train people through the wielding of the word of God. This is the only really differentiator between an elder and a deacon. Deacons also have high qualifications, but this is not part of the list. They're not violent, they're gentle, they're quarrelsome, not quarrelsome. They are not a lover of money, they're not a recent convert, and they're well thought of by others. Why? Because they're also supposed to be evangelists. Now, can I sum it up for you? Because this is worthy of a whole sermon. What's an elder? And what are their qualifications? An elder is a godly man who is skilled in wielding the word of God to preach, teach, and train with the scripture. Furthermore, these elders are to operate in plurality. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, let the spirit of the prophet be subject to the prophets. As I said, the pastor is not the CEO. He is someone who elders alongside other elders who are with him in the trenches. This prevents imbalance and it promotes longevity where if I died tomorrow, you would show up at church the next Sunday. Number three, I want to look with you at the attitude of an elder, the attitude of an elder. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, therefore, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. That word for exhort is the word appeal. It finds its root in the Greek word parakel. Remember, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. And the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. And what that means is that he is one who comes alongside you. And Peter here, I want you to think with me. He could have come to them and said, listen, you're playing with the big dogs now. I was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. I preached arguably the greatest sermon in history at Pentecost. 3,000 people were converted. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus tell you upon this rock? I mean, yeah, there might be some confusion there, but did he tell you that he was going to build the church on you? I didn't think so. Listen up. That's not how he comes. He comes and says, I exhort you. He comes alongside them. He's not wagging his finger in their faces. He's putting his arm around their shoulders and he's saying, I'm a fellow worker with you. Peter's been at this now for 30 years. His body bears the signs of his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He was limping, probably blind. Him and Paul both. I mean, you would have seen them and you would have gone like, man, this guy is hanging on for dear life. And he comes even to these younger men in the faith who have been appointed to serve and to exercise shepherding responsibility in the church. And he says, listen, I'm right there with you. I'm a fellow shepherd under the great shepherd. He's not domineering. He's not patronizing them but he comes to them with love, sincerity, and urgency. He's not flexing his apostolic credentials. My friend Harry always tells me, and I've probably heard it a hundred times, he always would look at me and say, Johnny, the force of positional authority is never as impactful as relational ministry. The force of positional authority is never as impactful as relational ministry. So Peter comes to them and he's not going, listen up. He's saying, listen, I exhort you. There's a task here. It's urgent. The value of anything is determined by the price that was paid for it. 
And he says, you want to know how Christ secured his sheep? You haven't been bought with gold or silver, but he tells us in chapter two, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's a level of urgency here. This is important. He's humble. And then he says, I'm a participant of the sufferings of Christ. I want you to see how Paul does the same thing. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter two for a moment. Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 6. He says, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, 2.6, even though as apostles of Christ, we may have asserted our authority. Here's what he's saying. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not seeking glory from you, and I didn't assert my authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. What could Paul have said? Well, he could have said, listen, ever heard of the New Testament? I wrote half of it. He could have said, hey, question for you. Have you ever been caught up to the third heaven? Has God appointed you as the ambassador to the Gentiles? That was me. So listen up and get on the bus. It's not what he says. Watch what he says in verse seven. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul says, listen, I didn't come to you with the rod. I didn't come to you trying to be the man. I came to you as a nursing mother. And my entire life is a symbol of my love for you. So shepherds are humble and they're eager. And then look back with me to 1 Peter chapter five. It says in verse two, part two, it says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. The ministry is no place for people who have to be coerced into shepherding. If you are going to be a pastor or an elder, you need to do so with a sense of divine commission, not with a sense of human compulsion. Ministry is not a drag. If you guys ask me how I'm doing, you will very rarely, if ever, hear me just go, not nah, busy. First of all, who cares? Second of all, everyone's busy. And third of all, I, I want to be the last guy on earth that just makes it sound like, oh man, I'm way down all the time. I mean, they, I will tell you my schedule, it's been full. It's been full. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Um, the church is growing um, and there's a lot to do. But I remember growing up, I always used to hear people tell my dad, who my dad has been a pastor my entire life since the day I was born. And I remember people going up to my dad saying, you know, Scott, it's tough in ministry. And I always used to hear him correct people. It's a joy. It's a joy. I remember asking my dad when I was about nine, I said, dad, I always hear people say ministry is tough. Why do they always say that? And he said, well, Johnny, I'll start to tell you. 
uh, why don't you stay up with me after my elders meeting? I'll come home. And he used to bring me a Boston cream from Dunkin' Donuts on the first Monday of every month when they had the elders meeting. And he would begin to talk to me about the different things that were happening in the church. And we would sit there at the dining room table. I used to cut my Boston cream in half, and he would take part of half of it. And we used to just dialogue since I was a little boy. And that happened probably for the next, you know, over the next decade. But I remember my dad always just being very clear with me, Johnny, ministry is a privilege. One of the guys that has been a huge impact in my life always says ministry is an expression of the mercy of God. You don't want to be at a church where guys shepherd in a way where they wear their ministerial busyness as a badge of honor. And so Peter is saying, listen, you might have a lot going on, but you shepherd the flock with eagerness. Why? Because Christ has bought them with his own blood, and this is precious. Number four, I want to look with you at the function of an elder. Peter says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, comma. That's just the intro. Here's the imperative verb. Shepherd the flock of God among you. It's right in our text. The function of an elder is to shepherd the flock. Now, this is an urgent, this is an active verb. It's an urgent command. Now, what does shepherding entail? That's the imperative, shepherd the flock, but what does that even mean? I write when I prepare, when, if you guys want to sneak peek into my life, every sermon, I would say by Thursday, I'm at about 40 pages of notes for Sunday. I then take that 40 and then I try to condense it down to 10 pages. At the top of every page, I write, what does that even mean? Because I don't want to just say empty platitudes and Christian jargon and Christian semantics. Yeah, shepherd the flock. What does it mean to be a shepherd? So Johnny, what does that even mean? That's what I want to talk to you about. To shepherd the flock of God is multifaceted, but it boils down to a few key responsibilities. Shepherds feed, lead, and protect the flock, and they do that primarily through the preaching, teaching, and training of the word of God. That's what an elder does. They preach and teach the Bible. They protect the flock from false doctrine, and they train in sound doctrine and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We're gonna talk about this more in a minute, but listen, my job and the elder's job collectively is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I'll get back to that in a minute. Today, the term preaching has become a pejorative. People say things like, don't preach at me. In our contemporary church culture, we say, yeah, don't preach, talk with me. Don't call it a sermon, call it a conversation. Don't stand in a pulpit, sit at a bar top table. Don't tell me what to do. Invite us all into something that God is doing. Don't preach for 40 minutes, share for 20. More stories, less substance. More laughs, less conviction. Nowadays, I would say in large part, style has become more important than substance. I get Facebook ads all the time for something called the art of teaching. I get very few ads on something called the science of teaching because how you say it has become more important than what you say. Now we could go to the inverse of that where a guy comes up here and he's a walking commentary and he just dumps a bunch of truth on you. That's not the answer either. But I've had a guy even a couple of years ago I was preaching at a camp. He came over and I think I've told you this before and he says, hey, listen, you favor the right side of the stage. If I talk to you how to whisper at times and to use the whole stage, I could unlock your potential. 
So naturally, I signed off. And I, yeah, no, I, uh, I just looked at him and I said, hey, I said, what do you mean by that? And, and there is a place for that, right? There is a place for something called homiletics, which is how we grow as preachers. Paul tells Timothy to be absorbed in his spiritual gift. It says to make pains. And then he says, let everyone see your progress. Here's a confession. I hope next year I'm a better, more clear preacher of the word of God than I am this year. And I work hard to make that happen. That's not like a weird thing. That's a biblical thing. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Let everyone see your progress in the exercising of your spiritual gift. I'm about as bad as it's ever going to get right now. And I hope that next year I'm better preacher than I am today. But with that being said, preaching, the heralding of the word of God is the primary function of a church and of its ministers. I want to persuade you of this because that's the goal of preaching is not to inform you merely, but to persuade you of certain realities. Our Lord performs many miracles, but John refers to them in his gospel as signs because they signified what he said, meaning that the signs that Jesus performed in John were to authenticate his message as he preached. Jesus would say often as the people were pressing in on him, wanting to make him king, he says in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news. When people were looking for him in Mark 1, 38, Jesus said, let us go somewhere else so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. In Luke 12, 14, Jesus sent his disciples out to preach. And all throughout the gospels and all throughout the book of Acts, there is the primacy and centrality of preaching. In Acts 1, prior to Jesus' ascension, he tells the apostles in Acts 1, 8, you are going to be my witnesses to the rest of the world. How? Well, in chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and immediately the apostles begin to preach. Peter preaches what is the greatest sermon in the New Testament and 3,000 souls are immediately converted through the preaching of the word. And this continues in Acts chapter three, there's more preaching. They arrive at the gate, they heal a man and he says, hey, do more miracles. And they say, listen, we can't do that. We can't offer you silver or gold, but you know what we can do? We can preach in the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter four, they're arrested, Peter and John. Why? Because they're preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. They're thrown in jail. You know what they say? Listen, in Acts 4.20, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop preaching about what we have seen and heard. They're released from prison. You know what they do? They get together, they pray, and it says they continue to preach with more boldness. Every single chapter almost in Acts shows the power and the efficacy of Christ-exalting, doctrinally rich preaching. Now, I want you to look with me at a story in Acts chapter six. So turn there for a moment. There's a great crisis in the church and it draws our attention to the primary task of elders. And I'm using that word primary intentionally. In Acts chapter six, verse one, it says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. This is a real problem and there is a real level of urgency here. We have widows in the church and not only are there widows, they're hungry. You might look at them and say, what are you gonna do, continue to preach? While this lady is hungry, stop what you're doing and be the hands and feet of Christ, right? But watch what the apostles said 
under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the commission they had received from the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones says they knew that they would be failing in their commission if they neglected their primary duty. So it says in verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Okay, pause for a moment. What happens next? What happens to a church where the elders can fulfill their primary function of being a prayer warrior and wielder of the word of God? Next verse, seven. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great number or many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Our church even here is growing rapidly and there are growing needs. But one of my main responsibilities to the elders and to you before the Lord is to rightly divide the word of God. This doesn't mean I don't do other things. Last week I talked with Wayne about the new floors that are going in. Uh, Yesterday I spent some time on the phone with someone who's in the hospital. This doesn't mean that we don't do other things and respond to needs. It is to say though, that our primary responsibility is to teach, preach, and train others with the word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter three, Paul tells Timothy, the church is the pillar and ground of the church. He reminds him, hey, this isn't a country club. This isn't a spiritual kind of like just hangout. This is the pillar and ground of the truth. And in that light, he charges Timothy to do one main thing. 2 Timothy chapter four, verse two, preach the word of God. Preach the word. Again, we live in a time that is changing. There are cyber trucks and artificial intelligence. And I told you a couple weeks ago that people have said things like, if the church doesn't drastically change their strategy, we're not gonna reach the next generation. Well, listen, the last 2,000 years of the church have been built on the bedrock foundation of the preaching and teaching and training of the word of God. Maybe you're wondering, I think appropriately, about what the pastor's role is in facilitating community. Community is a good and wonderful thing. And if you've been around me at any point, personally, you know it's a big part of what I'm pushing for, is that we're gonna hopefully create a strategy that all of you would be in midweek discipleship and midweek Bible studies so that there's a sense of belonging and a sense of togetherness. But let me just bleed for you for a moment. The depth of our community as a church is always going to be in direct proportion to our commitment to the word of God. And community, the strength of it, is always a derivative of how deep we are going on a Sunday and throughout the week. So at times, we can put the cart before the horse saying, community, community, community. Listen, if a church, all they do is talk about community, they likely have very little or shallow community. Deep community is founded upon a deep commitment to the word of God where the pastor elders train others to be disciple makers who then spearhead for them what depth looks like. 
this might be also, even as you think through listening to preaching, I'm, I'm emphasizing preaching right now. You might be like, well, I listen to sermons all week long. That might be true. But there is something that Paul refers to as the mystery of the church. It's not because I'm awesome or I'm the man, but there is a reality that when you come here and you listen to the same word being taught by the same guy and we're all here hearing the same message at the same speed, there is something Paul says that is the mystery of the church where we are bonded in love for each other and bonded in love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just about hearing the message, it's about a tangible expression that we are all here. Furthermore, everything in your life now you control. Um, some of you, well, I guess none of you would like to speed me up, but you can't. Some of you would like to slow me down, and I'm trying. And some of you would, in another other format, want to change the channel or whatever it might be. But this is a time where we come together and we listen to the word of God. God wants people in the assembly to listen together. George Whitfield was once asked, and I thought, think, think this was funny. What do you think about people, the great evangelist? What do you think about people printing and reading your sermons? And he says, I think that's fine but you can never put the lightning and the thunder on a printed page. And you can never put the spirit of God on a printed page. There's something, you guys, in, uh, in the first service, we had two baptisms. And it was an amazing time of testimony about what the Lord has done. I could print out those baptisms and you can read verbatim what they said, but it's nothing like being here. And it's nothing like seeing wet eyes and damp eyes and the amens when the people of God go, God is a savior and he is the Lord of our life. So there is an element where we do this together. Now, before I move on, I want to just define what is biblical preaching. I want to give you a brief definition. Biblical preaching is when the meaning of the message matches the meaning of the passage. Simple enough? It's when the meaning of the message lines up with the meaning of the passage. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, rightly divide the word of truth, which is to say that there are people who wrongly divide the word of truth in their messages. They use the Bible to say what they want to say rather than saying what the Bible means. They can use the scripture, leverage the scripture, and springboard off into their own conversations and their own opinions and their own topics. Now, this is important for us because the meaning of a passage never changes over time. It may have different applications but its meaning does not change. So there is no need to improvise, adapt, or innovate the strategy. When we ask in a small group setting, what does this passage mean to you? We need to understand fundamentally, it doesn't really matter what it means to you, right? It matters what it means. Now that is not to say that there is no direct applications, right? Because if we say in Corinthians that God is the God of all comfort, that's gonna be received by different people in the spirit of God. But the original meaning of that passage never changes and neither does any passage over time. God is a living God and this is the living and active word of God, but it's not a living and changing word of God. It doesn't need innovation or adaption to our cultural moment, which is why that I'm not trying to take truths and try to build them into kind of a, a contextualized framework. What do I do when I preach? I wanna to talk to you about the time when it was written. So I'm not saying, hey, I want you to imagine with me we're getting persecuted. No, I say, I want you to understand exactly what the people of God were going through when this was written so that you might get in the same pattern of thinking that they were in. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing. Now, I have attempted to carefully detail that preaching and teaching is the chief function of a pastor elder, but that is not the only one. In fact, there is something else crucial and paramount. Pastors are not just teachers and preachers. They are trainers, if all that a pastor did was preach the Bible, there would never be any multiplication. 
then you would adopt this false and wildly unbiblical view of church, that it's the paid professionals that put on church and you're you're just here for the show. After all, you pay people to wash your car, you pay people to iron your clothes, you pay people to walk your dog. So we get in this line of thinking that church is something that you show up to three Sundays a month for a 75 minute service. Along this line of thinking, church is graded based on what did I get out of it? This model of church creates consumers, but it does not create disciples. The elder's role then is not to enable consumerism, but to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. If you wanna know, there's one time in the entire New Testament that the word pastor is actually used, and it's in Ephesians 4. And the role of the pastor is to train and equip the members of the body to do the work of the ministry. And if I'm doing my job effectively, you know what will happen? There will be a radical dis- dissolution of this staff guy, lay person divide. You know, right now, I think I asked Justin for service. I think there's about 850 to 900 people at our church on a Sunday. I think about 200 or so of those are kids. Um, So let's say we have 600 adults on a Sunday. Right now, I'm the only guy on full-time staff. We have a couple part-time people that help coordinate. And do you know what else we have? A bunch of servants. And you know what we need more of? A bunch of servants. Because the last thing on earth I want as a church is just to hire a bunch of people that do the work of the ministry. And then we fall into this ditch of church is something you attend. I told you last week, this is not the church. You are the church. And so the pastor is an effective trainer who equips and then deploys the people to do the work of the ministry. There should not be seven disciples here. There should be 120. When there's an issue on a Sunday morning, my goal is that I can look around and grab any five or six women that are around me and say, there's a pressing need here. And so that's what a church does. Here's what also my goal is, just tangibly, I'm gonna preach here on Sunday mornings. I teach on Friday mornings at our men's Bible study. And then I'm gonna grab five or six guys where over the next two to three years, I'm gonna teach and train them to wield the word of God. And then I'm gonna take those guys and I'm gonna say, bring to me two guys. And then you're gonna do the same thing because that is training and equipping them to do the work of the ministry. If you're an older woman, you have a responsibility in the church. And it's not to preach on Sunday mornings. But it's, but it's in the same level of importance. You're to take younger women and you're to pour your life into them. If you're an older man, you're to train the younger men. And this is the function of the church. It sounds so simple and it's so neglected. The pastors do not do all the ministry. They train the body to do the work of ministry. I had Wayne read this morning the end of Colossians 4, first of all, because He's the only one that could read it and get all the names right. But secondly, because I wanted to at least exhibit for you a certain reality. Paul's thanking people, right, in that book and at the end of his letter. In the New Testament, Paul specifically mentions 100 names that are associated with him. 36 of that 100 are those he identifies as co-laborers and partners in the gospel. Paul doesn't say, I'd like to thank my assistant, Timothy, who is probably half his age. He says he is a dear brother and partner in the gospel. This is wartime, right? Remember the church is growing, we're building, we're advancing and every single inch that the church gains 
is an inch gained on enemy territory. And so Paul refers to these labors and he looks left and he looks right. And at one point he says that he was almost so sorrowful to the point of death when Epaphras was sick or when Epaphroditus was ill. These are the people he served with. He wasn't trying to do it all. He was trying to equip everyone so that we all could do all that we can for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. So pastors are preachers, teachers, and trainers. They are also lovers of people. In James 5, they pray for the sick. In Hebrews 13, they watch out for the flock. They defend sound doctrine. And there's one other thing. And if you know me, you're going to hear me on this frequently. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. And then in verse 5, he says, do the work of a what? Anybody know? An evangelist. There's a temptation for every pastor to say, my job is the internal equipper. And you guys are the external evangelists. I'm a mobilizer. No, here's my job. I'm going to be on the forefront of the evangelism excitement in our church. Because our job is not just to get trained and equipped internally. It's that we would be trained and equipped so that we could be disciples who make disciples. And then those disciples make more disciples. I've told you before that 95% of church growth in America is statistically church shift. Most of you that are here, I'm glad you're here, but have come from another church. I hope and I pray, I do pray for this. I'm gonna pray for this in about three minutes. But I pray that the way our church grows is also, hey neighbor, I wanna start walking you through the word of God. I wanna tell you what he's done in my life. Some of you know my story. I wanted to be in, in business and one of the things the Lord put on my heart is that I started going to Friday night football practices at the public high school. And I said, come over to my house for pizza on Fridays. I want to start walking you through the Bible. And that's what I did. And then somehow I ended up, there was a Kai that I knew that ended up in juvie. And then I started preaching in juvie hall because I wanted to do the work of an evangelist, even if the Lord had me in business or whatever it may be. And that's the responsibility, not just of those who are gifted evangelistically. Every Christian, Spurgeon says, is a missionary or an imposter. There is no such thing as a privatized Christian faith. So Peter is encouraging us. You stand firm and you stand out. And he's reminding me, Paul does, to do the work of an evangelist alongside all the other elders. Elders have a passion to train, but they also have a burden to reach the lost. As I land the plane, fifth and finally, I want to look at the elders' motivation. It says in verse three that they're not to do so lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example. It says in 2B, and that they're not doing so for sordid gain. Shepherds don't shepherd to get stuff. They shepherd to give away their lives. Paul says that he was being poured out like a drink offering. But watch the ultimate motivation in verse four. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is coming back. That's the motivation of an elder. I want to be found. You know, C.T. said, said, only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Every single one of us is going to stand before God. 
But it does say that I'm going to endure stricter judgment as a teacher of the word of God. And so I live in light of that reality. Isaiah 40 calls God our shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he is called the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, he is the chief shepherd who gives to those who lead his church the unfading crown of glory. Every single temporal crown will fade, rust, and wither. But whatever Christ gives you lasts. And so Peter reminds his fellow elders, listen, the journey up the hill to the vista ahead is worth the work. There's future glory, there's future reward, and it's all for Christ. Next week, um, here's what I wanna do. I wanna look at what you do alongside me in the church. Um, I think at times, because of the, the growth that we've experienced as a church, there's a level of urgency to start doing things that we're not doing or to add to what we are currently doing that we need more of. But every single growth that we have as a church is going to be a product of proper spiritual attitudes and views of the church. Meaning, like I say, it's the end of the year. Typically, this is when a church teaches on giving. Hey, listen, um, we don't talk about the offering much. We're going to start because you know why? I'm going to mention it. Because for me not to mention how you give is for me to fail to lead you in one of the key ways you worship God. It'd be like not having singing on a Sunday. Giving is an expression of our worship. So if I don't talk about it, people, oh, it's weird to talk about. No, no, no. I would be irresponsible to not. I want to talk to you about the one another's, how you interact with each other. I want to talk to you next week about your spiritual gifts, that God has given you a unique spiritual gift that you are to exercise in his body for one reason, the edification of the body around you till Galatians 4, Christ is formed in you. You have a part to play here. The church is not one guy on stage or seven elders in a room. It's every single member who has a part. And you're not fundamentally someone who attends church. I'm gonna harp on this. You belong to the church. Christ saved you so that purpose clause, you would give your life for what he's building. And if that's gonna be a reality in our church, We need to catch on to the vision of God as revealed in the revelation of his word. And that's my goal next week. Can I pray for us? God, we thank you so much for the word of God. Lord, this is a a big subject and much could be said and many weeks could be spent. But Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would Help us to have an, just an accurate view of what the role of a shepherd is. It says in Hebrews 13 that we're to submit to our elders and submit to shepherds, Lord, and even, Lord, that is a high calling and a high responsibility. Lord, I pray even as we just heard that the elders at this church would faithfully preach, teach, and train others in the word of God and that they would do the work of an evangelist so that they would be disciple makers who make disciples. There are not a few people at a church that are disciple makers. It is every responsi- or the, deci- uh, the responsibility of every disciple. And so Lord, would you help us in that regard? Would we reach the people around us? Lord, would you give us a burden for the lost? Would we not become so internally focused that we become externally disobedient? 
Lord, we love you and we're thankful, Lord, that you love us and have been so gracious as to reveal your plan, purposes, and love to us in your word. Give us a greater love for each other as we grow in our love for you, our chief, great, good shepherd. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, Amen. amen.